Good morning. As Austin said earlier, man, it's so good to, to worship you this morning and hear your voices uh, sing about Christ. Uh, he is our cornerstone. That's what scripture tells us. He's the, the builder that the, or he's the one that the builders rejected, and it, but he's become the chief cornerstone. Uh, it's such a great song to, to sing, really, as we open up uh, and continue our series in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me there. Uh, we'll try to have those on the screen. You can use a device if you need to, to, to get God's word in front of you. But I want to encourage you. I really do. I want to encourage you to use uh, scripture, especially as we look at these uh, incredible uh, verses, especially uh, today. Uh, I want to pray before we open. I have prayed uh, desperately for God to give us a fresh view, understanding, wrap our minds around who Christ is. It's a real simple roadmap. I mean, I can give you basically the outline before we even begin. Um, I want us to just talk about Christ this morning. And Colossians 1.15 is an excellent exposition uh, for us to seriously consider who is this one that we sing about, that we've just sung about. Who is he? And so really what we're going to do is like, I just want to talk about who Christ is, and then we're going to wrap that up with who we are apart from Christ and who we are in Christ. And really, that's just what I want to do today. That's, my, that's basically my outline in a nutshell. And then you're like, well, that's not an outline. I mean, I've seen the outline in front of me, and you're like, that's not the outline. It is. It's the broad outline, and there's a lot of points in, in between. Um, and I want us to look at that together. And I, my prayer, listen, my prayer is this, that we will see clearly and accurately, accurately who Christ is and how that can change every single thing in your life. It changed my life, and I hope it's changed your life, and it hasn't changed your life. I hope it will change your life. So I want us to pray. I want to go to the Lord uh, as we look at, I got a lot to cover uh, in a short amount of time, but supposedly I have you for the rest of the day, I guess, so I guess we could just keep going, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I guess I am the cook, too, so I've got to get there um, to do that as well. But let me pray, uh, and let's go to the Lord um, with this this morning. Father, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that I can call you a father. I know some, when they think of a father, maybe they think, they don't think very highly of that. The thought that maybe they've had a father who has not been a good father. I'm, I'm sure there's some in here, I think I even know some in here that have experienced the difficulty of, of not having a, a father, a great father figure, or the lack of completely a father figure in their life. And Father, I pray that they would experience what I've been able to experience in you, that you are a loving father, a loving and kind and gracious father who desperately wants us to know you. And today I pray, Father, that as we look at the Son, as we look at Christ, the image of God, that we get to see clearly what seemed so impossible to understand. Who is God? And for centuries, people are trying to figure out exactly who this God is and, and what is He like. We hear of creation and we hear of all these years and centuries and centuries of, of events that have happened in history. And people are wondering, who is God and what is He like? I pray today as we look at this wonderful, inspired word from you, that we look at it and that we would understand clearly who God is because we've seen Christ. So, Father, today I pray that you'll use me. I pray that your spirit 
through the preaching and looking at your word, that your word would penetrate our hearts and leave us completely different than when we came this morning. It would lead us to greater devotion, greater awe, greater wonder at who you are. So we ask for your help uh, this morning in all of this. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want us to look at this. I mean, get ready, kind of strap in a little bit. We're going to fly a little bit, but at the same time, we'll try to take our time because uh, as you see in your notes there, there's a good bit to cover. Uh, so I want us to read this together. I want to read the, the whole section all up front at the beginning, and then we're just going to walk slowly through it. Like, it's a pretty easy outline. It's not a hard outline to, to, like, some texts, you know, it's like, oh, man, like, how do we make all the connections here and make that in a palatable way to receive it and understand it? Uh, this one is super easy. So I want us to look at this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, talking of Jesus. It says, he is, talking about Jesus, we could even put his name there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. When this was uh, written, you know, I mean, like, I want you to understand, first of all, as Colossians was written, as, as this book is written, there was a couple of issues. But if you remember last week, I mean, Paul praised them and thanked God on behalf of this church because he was so thankful that they were growing and understanding. They were, they had faith, hope, and love. These things were present in them, and they were boldly living out the gospel. But some word had gotten to him from Epaphras who had planted this church, and so he's giving him some information because this, this church that he wrote to, Paul never visited. He had not actually been present there. He was in prison at the time when he wrote this, uh, and he writes this letter trying to help them because there was word that was coming that there was some false teaching coming in. There was a claim that Jesus wasn't actually God, and so there was these things that were coming up and these people trying to speak into that, it's the same today as it was back then. But here's the really cool part, I think, about this book. Is this book, you remember, if you remember on Easter, for those of you who are on Easter, I mentioned how in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul in, in writing and saying, like, here's the, here's, the, here's the resurrection, here's the facts about the resurrection. Remember he said that, like, Jesus, post-death, resurrection, appeared to about 500 people at one time. And he said most of them are still alive today, like, Hey, go talk to him. You'll get to know, like, listen, seriously, what I'm saying is accurate. Here's the thing. Colossians wasn't written 100 years later, 200 years later. Like, even as he's writing this book, 
Some of these people are still alive. I mean, this is first century. He's still writing to people who were still alive and present who had actually seen the risen Savior. And here, he's trying to help them say, look, here is who Jesus is. And that's what our outline is this morning. And I want to look at that. And the first one is this. You see it right in verse, verse 15. He is, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the, I want you to hear this, he is the exact representation of God. It's like as if in a mirror. I know some of you this morning, how many of you looked in a mirror this morning? Have you already looked at yourself this morning? Anybody? I mean, I definitely did, and I'm like, man, I can't fix this. Uh, I try my best, and every time it's like, nope, it just doesn't get any better, right? Like, but when you look at the, in the mirror, that is the exact imprint of what I'm looking. I mean, that is me in the mirror. It's not, it's not like it looks kind of like me, or it's like a twin. No, it's actually me. So those, those dark spots that are coming, the gray hairs that are going, the receding hairline that's going up, all that stuff is in the mirror, and it's telling me this is what I look like, Right? Jesus is the exact representation. So, so people that know, that knew me growing up, all right, so people who knew me growing up and now know my boys, my two boys, Colson and Levi, they both talk about how they're like, the, you know, like that phrase, like the spitting image of their father kind of thing. Like, I get that with, like, so people who knew me know that I'm a lot like, I was a lot like Levi, and like, I know that you're like, seriously, because those have been in a lot of Levi, he's like a talker, he's like all over the place, like, and I'm pretty quiet, unless I'm up here, basically. Like, I'm kind of quiet, reserved, but like, supposedly, I was into everything, climbing on everything when I was a kid. So people are like, man, you ju- look just like and act just like Levi. And in other ways, there's Colson, my son, my oldest son, and he and I are very similar. We have, he loves the same things I love. He loves sports. He loves watching sports. He likes talking about sports. He wants to do everything like me, and he reminds me of me. I mean, that was me as a kid. But here's the thing. He's not the exact imprint. He's not, he looks like me, but he's not me. Like, when we look at a mirror, it's like, that is exactly me. Even if you have a twin, even if there's a, you know, identical twins, right? They're, they're differences. They're even if you, like, I mean, like, I grew up with several twins in my classes. And uh, those, they would try to put tricks on the, on the new school teacher, right? They're like the ones that would, they would, sl- like, flip classes and all that stuff. And then, like, turn in different assignments and all those kind of cool things that I guess twins get to do uh, that I didn't get to do. And so, but they would do those things because the, the, the teacher couldn't recognize them. But listen, I had grown up with these guys. Like, I knew exactly who was who. It, there was not, I mean, there was total differences to me. I'm like, how can a teacher be fooled? Have you, ever, have you ever had friends with a twin? You get that, right? Like, eventually, you know what they look like. You know the differences. And see here, what, he's, what Paul is saying, and when he says he is the image, or the, literally the icon is kind of the word we, in, the, in the Greek there, but he is the image of the invisible God. So here's the question that I think that leads to us. How do we know what God is like? I mean, I think that's probably what a lot of people were doing before Jesus. Like, like thousands of years ago, I mean, go like 5,000 years ago, back to Abraham and them. They're trying to figure out, Moses, he wanted to know, what is God like? He's like, show me. He wanted to see his glory. Show me what you're like. And he, he would give them these things, but like, he still was like, you can't see me because God is spirit. He's spirit. So when you're talking about God being spirit, like, What's he like? I'm not sure. We kind of start to figure out some of those things as you observe creation. You can look at creation and be like, okay, I get God is, must be creative. You know, you start looking at the, like, who thinks of making a giraffe, for instance? You're like, what's the purpose of a giraffe? I don't know. 
You tell me. I don't know. I don't have a clue. I can't tell you today. I don't know. It just maybe like clean up the trees, the top. I don't know that people, other people can't reach. I don't know. I don't know. Like what's the purpose of making someone with a really long neck? Or to make an elephant. <laughs> like, I got to watch, we were at the Atlanta Zoo a couple weeks ago, and you watch this elephant. And, like, they'd, they'd hung these, uh, at the Atlanta Zoo, they hung these, these things where they can feed them. And it was like, they would get up, and they would just get that, that trunk way up high to kind of pull. And you're like, why does it have a trunk again? Like, what's the purpose of a trunk? So they can, like, hang out in water and keep their nose above the water? I don't know, or whatever, tr- whatever that thing's called. The trunk above water or something? I have no idea. You, like, you start looking, you're like, an anteater? That's kind of, I mean, that makes sense, right? Who likes ants? I don't. Let's, let's let an anteater destroy them. I don't know. Um, but you're like, possum purpose? I'm not sure, <laughs> right? Like, we look at creation. We say, man, creation is, is unique. It's, I mean, there's billions of species. I mean, you start going into the sea. We don't even know what all the, 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 those animals. I mean, this, my son, my Levi, is like, loves those animals, loves the siphonophores and all these things. And I'm like, I have no idea these are. You see, God, we, when we start looking at creation, we're like, man, God, you're unique. But who are you? You see, in Christ, in Christ, he is the image. He is, we're going to see this in a second, he is God, but he's the image. Like, he's God made visible. So when you see Christ, you have understand and get to know God. So, for instance, when Jesus was on, on earth and you read the Gospels, I mean, if you, re- if you want to know who was Jesus and what was he like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the story of him living on earth, basically. And in there, we learn, how do we know that God is merciful? Well, in the Gospels, if you read in John 8, you see God dealing with an adulterous woman and how he dealt with her mercy, with such mercy and grace. Telling her, listen, who among you can cast the stone? Uh, who's the first who hasn't sinned who's going to cast the stone against this woman when they were trying to stone her for her sin? What does he do? He's like, everyone's like, well, I've, I've sinned. And they all walk away. And when they've all walked away, he says, Who's standing here? Who's your accusers? Where are they now? And what does he tell her? He says, go. I don't either. Go and sin no more. He tells her, leave changed, leave different, go no sin no more. But we see the mercy. He doesn't bring judgment. He brings grace and truth to her. How do we know God is all-powerful? When Jesus is on earth, he heals people. He goes around and he takes a blind person and he, and he spits in the mud and he makes some mud and he wipes it on his eyes and all of a sudden that man can see. We look and he raises the dead. He takes Lazarus. But, but even in that same story of Lazarus, how do we know what God is like? He's emotional. He's loving. I mean, like the shortest verse in all of Scripture is Jesus wept. Jesus weeping. And you know why he was weeping? He was weeping over the death of Lazarus, his friend. But yet, I mean, he's God. He knew he was going to heal him. But yet, the, the pain and the suffering and seeing the effects of sin on the world and God, we can know what God is like because he is the image of of the invisible God. Second, he is above all. We sing this when we talk about come thou found of every blessing and we sing the tag towards the end of that song, above all else. He is above all. Notice how it continues here. He is the image of the invisible God. Notice this is where people like to pull things out of scripture and use this to build a whole faith or a whole cult ultimately off of phrases like this. The firstborn of all Creation is how it reads here in the ESV in verse 15. And I want you to, don't misunderstand this. Misunderstand this. This doesn't mean, as the Jehovah's Witnesses um, wrongly believe, Jesus was not God the Father's first creation. He's not a created being. Rather, this speaks to his position, his, his rank. 
He is the firstborn. He is, as in, for instance, in the society and in things like that, the firstborn would be the one who is in the highest rank. He would end up with the greater inheritance. He would have the status and the name in the family clan. That's firstborn. But not always was the firstborn the one who got the highest rank. I mean, David, for instance, ended up being of the highest rank. But what was he? A lowly shepherd out in the field. All his brothers were, were older, stronger, wiser, like seemed like, like they're the ones who should be the firstborn. Instead, the, the line is going to be passed through David versus an older brother, Jacob and Esau. Jacob ends up being the younger, but yet he's the one that the blessing goes to, even in a, in a deceitful way, but that God had already, in his sovereign plan, was using him. It is more about rank. Rather, this is speaking of his position. He is first in power and authority. He is above all others. And this is further explained as we read on and continuing. But notice the next point, verse number, point number three. He is the creator. Notice verse 16. It says this. For by him all things were created. Now, for some, you know, you're like, huh? You know, I thought Jesus was a baby, you know? We celebrate at Christmas. Like Jesus was this baby, this infant who came into the world, and he's come so meek and mild. Wait, how is he the creator? How is, talking about Jesus in this passage, how is he the creator? Because notice what he says. He says, all things for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. He is the creator. God, he, God was, here's what I want you to understand. This is a little bit confusing, and trust me, it is confusing. It's still confusing a little bit to me. Um, but here's what scripture is very clear on, is that there is one God, right? There is God Almighty. There is one God. I mean, the Jews ultimately, like what set them apart from the rest of the world, all the other religions around them was they were monotheistic. Most, almost every other nation around them was polytheistic, meaning they, they worshipped many gods. And they would make their Baals, they'd make their different idols, and they would worship these things. The Israelites and the people of God, and now even Christians, we would say oh, there is one God, but he's expressed himself in three distinct persons. So we're talking about one God, and you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All still one God. They're co-equal as God. They're completely almighty Yahweh God. And yet expressed in this picture of what we see as a person. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about God here, and when we say this creator, here's the thing he's saying. God, God, the Father, used the Son as the agent to create all things. So when God speaks, Jesus speaks. When in the beginning, when we go all the way back to creation, right? In the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do that? He did it through spoken word. The agent of creation was Jesus. Jesus didn't come to existence 2,000 years ago that changed history. Jesus has always existed. How do we, how do we know these things? We know these things. I want to look at, I want to get ahead of myself because he's going to talk more about him being fully God. 
But here's the idea. He is the creator God. He is the one who places everything. The one who hung the stars in the sky and knows every single one of them. And everyone that's created, my son was telling me the other day, like every second or half a second or something like that as another star is born. And now these galaxies are continually developing and growing. And as the universe is expanding, which is mind-blowing to think that we call it the known universe. Like we don't even know how big our universe is. We just build bigger telescopes to see if how far we can see. And then another few generations, they'll have bigger telescopes to see how far our creation is. But what we find in Scripture is that God, Jesus as God, is the creator. He is, notice this though, and this is an important point. I want you to see this. I, I, this is really important. This changes, this should change all of our lives, is this. He's the creator, all things, invisible and visible, invisible and visible things. But notice what he says. All, therefore, all things were created. Notice, notice right at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created by him, but also for him. You think about this. When you create something, you make something, right? Like if I make something, like, you know, I'll make a table or something like that. Like that's my table. Like, you know, if you make a chair, you're like, that's my chair. I'm going to sit in my chair. There's, there's some great quotes on this, but there's one um, uh, from Kuiper, who was a, a, in a, a Netherlands. I mean, man, there's amazing. I mean, if you want to study a guy, and amazing. I mean, he was a, a pastor who planted a church and started a denomination. Uh, he ended up becoming like the president or prime minister of the Netherlands. Like, he died like in the 1920s. But before that, though, he was quoted as saying like, when, when, when Jesus looks out over all of creation, everything that he can look at, he can say, this is mine. Because he created it all. And, beca and because he is the creator, he says it's mine. And so we, as created beings, are created. Notice this. It changes your perspective. We're created for him. So a lot of you, like some of you in this room, you're an accountant. You're an accountant not for you. You're an accountant for him. You work with your hands or you serve people at a restaurant. You're created for him. So you do that for him. It changes your view on work and life. It changes how you go about your life, the things that you do, the things that you have fun with. You do the things in, of fun. Like, we're going to have fun this afternoon. And it's like, well, we're supposed to be joyless? No, of course not. We play cornhole to his glory, right? Like, we do all things for him because he deserves it all. He owns it all. He deserves every bit of our worship. He deserves every bit of our praise. And this is what is so cool. We're going to look at this in a little bit, though. Think about this. The one who hung the stars is also going to be the same one who's going to have nail-scarred hands, who's going to not just create you, but die for you. The creator God, Jesus, our Messiah, the one that has the name above all names, who, has, who is literally, as we're looking at, above all things, humbles himself to be taking on human flesh. You see, in the incarnation, what we say is this, is Jesus, who's completely forever, completely existed for all of eternity, comes meek and mild as a child in human form. The God who has always been comes in Jesus as the uh, God incarnate, fully God and yet fully man. He is the creator. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse number four is this. He is the sovereign sustainer over all creation. He is the sovereign sustainer over all creation. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things. Again, again, he's always existed. He is before it all. 
When there was nothing, he was there. He was before all things. And in him, all things, notice this, hold together. You see, there's, there's a, a, a thing that's going around, a, a belief system that's going around right now is this therapeutic deism, this idea, this moralistic therapeutic deism, that basically God, there is a God, and he did create everything, but yet he's kind of stepped aside. He's kind of stepped back and let things play out as he wants. Like, just watch, he like, let me start, let me set things in motion, and then just kind of let it go. And then it's just this, this evolving thing of life, and he's kind of just in the back watching it all. You know, that is not the case that we see in Scripture. He is active in creation. He's active in your life. He's active in my life. He's not absent from this world. He is very, very much involved in every aspect of our life. He holds all creation together. You know, right? right? That's the childhood song that we could all sing together, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. You guys didn't sing with me. That was very embarrassing, <laughs> you know? Right? Like, he's got the whole world in his hands. Literally, like, like, we're not saying, like, physically, metaphorically, like, in that way. Like, he holds everything together. Every bit of creation. All of it. But here's the thing, though, right? Like, when we look at society, we look at culture, we sometimes, we're looking at it, and we see the chaos of this world. And we think, how could God possibly have things under control when so much seems out of control? Let me just say this, just because it's out of our control and we don't see how we can keep a grasp on it, because, you know, that's what we want to do, right? We want to keep things in control, and we're trying our best to control every aspect of our lives. I mean, I try to do that every day, and I quickly learn, like, man, you just can't control hardly anything, right? You're trying to control your kids. You're trying to manage work and, and family balance and all those things, and it's just like you can't keep up. Or you look at society, and you're like, man, is God really in control if there's this crazy stuff happening in Russia and Ukraine and we see in the Middle East and all the de- in China and all over the world, we see sex trafficking and we hear of all the devastating things in society and we say, listen, isn't it out of control? Here's the reality. Just because it's out of our control doesn't mean it is out of God's control. Listen, let me, let me tell you this. This is important for us. Listen, if your life is falling apart, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Give it over to Jesus. Because guess what? He holds it all together. If your relationships are falling apart, give it to Jesus. He holds it all together. I know there are many of you in this room who could give testimony to this fact where when you thought you could control it, but you couldn't, but then you got to watch as God was actually holding it all together, and you finally said, God, I surrender. I give this to you. I give my children to you. I give my work to you. I give my life. I literally step my life and say, it is a living sacrifice to you. Some of you have done that with your life, and you said, God, I surrender it all, and you could testify to this fact and know that God is in control, and you've trusted him with that. Listen, here's the reality. If you cannot hold it all together, but here's the reality. I know who can. Give it to Jesus. Jesus is creator, but he's also sustainer. And who or what are you not, I want to ask you this, who or what are you not, not trusting him with? Give it to him. He is the sustainer of all things. He holds it all together. Number five, he is head of the church. This is verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be supreme or preeminent. You see, Jesus is the head of the church. He is in charge of his, it is his church. The reason we know it's his church is he paid the price for it. 
He gave his life. He, we are the bride of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we're his bride. And, and he, one day we know that he's going to return and come back for his bride. And the church exists as a body of believers. It's a, that's, the, that's the description we get in Scripture, is that we're a body. We, all fun, we have different functions. Right? In a church, even of this setting, I mean, some came early to set up. Others are serving in the children's ministry. Others are praying for this. Others have been hospitable, inviting. Some are evangelists, and they're sharing the gospel during the week. We all function with different roles and abilities and talents and spiritual gifts. And all of those, though, fall under the lordship of Christ. It falls under as him as the head. I'm not the head of this church, of Redeemer Community Church. I'm not the head. No elders, no board, no person, not a congregation is the head of the church. Christ is the head of his church. He should always be the head of our church and every church. You see, we, we look to him. For instance, with my body, right? Like, if I want to move my hands, you know, as I'm going crazy up here, moving my hands everywhere and yelling and all these kind of things. That's all coming from my brain, right? The brain's telling me, and it's like, brain, slow down. I'm trying to tell it to calm down a little bit, right? And it just wants to keep going. And it's like, my hands just won't stop. And it's like, hold on to the, pu- the podium here, Eric. It's like, strap in a little bit, slow down, right? Like, my brain's telling me to do these things. It might be crazy. It's going crazy. I'm thinking through thoughts, all those things. But ultimately, it's the brain. It's the head that's telling me how to move and to function. Just like your body, as, as you want to move your right arm, you're going to write something or sign a letter or, or give a hug or give a kiss. All that comes from your head, your mind. It is, the, 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 it is the, the power system behind what you do. It's the functioning. It's the computer. You see, Jesus is the head of the church, and it, it is him. And here's what a lot of churches do, and we, we want to make sure that we don't do. Is churches can so easily say, well, become very consumer and want to, like, please people because it's like, well, we have certain, such and so in the church, and so, well, we want to make you guys happy. Because, right, I mean, like, some of you, you work in uh, the service industry, and so a lot of times you're told, like, hey, put the customer first, right? Like, put the customer first. You know, they come in, and you're like, hey, I don't like you at all, but it is my pleasure to serve you, right? A lot of you, I'm like, are you lying through your teeth when you say my pleasure, you Chick-fil-A folks? Um, you know, it's like, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Man, I can't stand that guy, or whatever, right? Like, but you want to put that person, the customer first. That is the wrong move for every church that does that. It shouldn't be about you, and it shouldn't be about me. It's not put the customer, man, feel good on this, or man, I I think people would like this. No, it is Christ is the head of his church. We should be all about pleasing him and saying, it is about you, and these songs are for you. We sing these songs to you, not to each other. We might be testifying things together, encouraging each other through song to worship God, but it is Him. And so when we make decisions, we're saying, God, are you in this? And listen, that, that directly applies to your life too, right? You go about your life and you got a decision to make. You're like, man, I just got to, I don't know what to do. I got to figure this out. Do we just say, he's the sustainer, give it to him? We, as the head of the church, the same thing. We're saying, God, you're, it is your church. You bought it with your own blood. What do you want? What do you want with my life, God? What do you want for your church? How do we want to respond? How are we going to follow Jesus and help people follow Jesus and make him known? We want your help. We're prayerfully dependent. That's one of our values. You see, Christ is head of the church. Number six, he is fully God 
if this wasn't already clear. He is fully God. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice that. I mean, you read this, this, this little section, this hymn uh, that was written, whether it was by Paul and Paul inserted it, or Paul is a songwriter and he, put, and he wrote it himself. I'm not really sure. There's a lot of debate over, like, where this comes in. The, the, the debate is, though, clear that it's a song that was sung um, and meant to be sung the way it's written in the Greek. And here in this, he says this in verse 9, for in him all the fullness. When you read throughout this, this section, you get a lot of this. All things were created. Everything. All, like this broad stroke phrases. And he says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is fully God. Jesus is the eternally existent God entering human history at a certain point as a baby. But yet fully God, as I was saying earlier. He's the creator entering his creation. Many people think all religions are basically uh, the same. That is not true. All the other, most, almost every other religion, whether it's Muslims with Muhammad, they think he's a great prophet. They don't think he's God. They think Jesus is a great prophet, but he's less than Muhammad. The uh, other, I mean, go to the Jews, right? Jewish, listen, when, when in 19, I think 48, when they established themselves as a nation again, they were given that right. And they're figuring out who gets to be a part of this? Who gets to be a member of the Jewish nation? Certain, like, specific Jews, they ended up putting together a statement, and basically what they were doing ultimately was kind of limiting the person who saw Jesus as God, you're not allowed to be a Jew. And it kind of makes sense from what their viewpoint is. And so if, you're, if you believed in Jesus, like if you're a, what we call a Messianic Jew, you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, he was the promised one of the Old Testament, here Jesus is, he comes into human form, and he comes and he dies and he takes your place and he rose again. If you believe in that as a Jew, you would, they would call it like a Messianic Jew. A Messianic Jew is not going to be allowed to be a citizen of Israel because of the way they wrote in their Supreme Court. How, who can be a Jew in the nation of Israel? You see, because they don't believe Jesus is fully God. All these other religions, they're like, oh, he's great, right? He's, listen, I mean, even people who are atheist historians, different ones, they literally point to Jesus as he is the central point of all of humankind's existence. He is the dividing line, and this is where it gets divided, is that he is claiming to be fully God. And you're like, well, did he claim, ever claim to be fully God? Good question. Glad you asked. Abraham, listen, in the, in, the, in the Gospels, in John chapter, I think it's chapter 8, Abraham is, you know, this figure throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Abraham is this, is the father of many nations. He, the Jews look back to him as the beginning point, because he was the beginning point of a Jewish nation. And so Jesus claims to be God because here's what he says to the Jews. He says, listen, Abraham, as this Israel's founding father, he was the first of their nation, all these things. But at one point, and this can be found in John 8, Jesus claimed to know Abraham personally. Now, if Jesus is just a good man born 2,000 years ago, Abraham was born another several thousand years before. How does Jesus know Abraham? Jesus is saying, like, hey, I know him in verse 56 and 57. But in, in 8, I want to read this to you because I think this is a really clear point about Jesus' claim to be God, is this. Look at verse 58. John 8, 58, he says this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, 
I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you're like, okay, well that's, what does that even mean actually? You might be like, what does that mean? Before Abraham was, I am. Well, the I am statement is important because in the Old Testament, the I am statement was how God, when Moses said, like, I go to Pharaoh and I go tell him, like, the God of Israel is said to set my people free and I'm supposed to go in and tell them to let, hey, let my people free. Who am I to say I'm going to, who's, who's God am I, who are you? What am I to say? He said, I am who I am has sent you. And you're like, well, what does that mean? When you think about I am, for instance, it's always the present. So like at creation, I am. In the present, I am. At the crucifixion, I am. In the future, I am. He is all, he's the alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's forever existed this way, and he's going to forever exist that way. He is timeless. He is above time. He created time. He is, he's saying this, and, his, and here's how we know this was a statement about being God. Because look at the next verse, verse 59. So the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews immediately said, uh-uh, you're not, you're claiming to be something that you're not. You're claiming to be God, and so we're going to destroy you right now. We're going to kill you for this. Listen, they didn't kill Jesus because he had meals with, with um, and shared meals with sinners and the outcasts of society. They didn't kill him because he claimed to heal people. They didn't kill him for all these other things that he did on earth. They killed him because he claimed to be God. When Jesus, Jesus also famously said this, he said, you've seen the Father. You have, or listen, you, if you've seen God, you've seen me. Because he says, I and the Father, this is a bold claim, are one. Meaning, God the Father, God the Son are one God. He's claimed to be God. And no, I mean, he's claiming to be God. This was a huge deal. And Paul is saying all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Not a little bit of goodness, not a little bit of godness, not a little bit, not like a created being who's really high up in the hierarchy of deity and all these things. No, he is fully God. And number seven, this last point I want to make about who Jesus is, is this. He is the reconciler. Verse 20. And through him, notice this, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You've ever had a difficult relationship you know, like super awkward, different things like that. Like, I know, like, there's times where I've screwed up at home, right? And you're like, all right, this is getting a little bit awkward. You don't know what to do. You're like, I got to make this right, like, in a relationship. Someone, someone's got to give here. And usually it's, usually it's me because she doesn't do anything wrong. It's always me, right? Like, um, but, but what happens with reconciliation is someone's got to fix the relationship, to mend a relationship. Something has to happen. And, and what we're saying is this, and I want to kind of skip ahead a little bit and kind of come back and fully explain this idea of God as a reconciler. Is this, though, I think we first need to understand who we are were, or who we were apart from Christ. And that's in verse 21 and 22. It's in your notes as well. But look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile... 
in mind, doing evil deeds. Listen, so you want to know who you are apart from Christ? Those are those three points right there in your, in your Bibles. You're alienated. You're an outsider. You're apart. You've not, you're not allowed in. You know, like, have you ever been one of those people? You're like, man, I'm not good enough to be in the, the, the inner circle or something like that. You've been, been kind of alienated, cast out. He's saying, as apart from Christ, you've been alienated. You're, you're exiled. You're not allowed in. You're alienated. Notice this. In, in the second one, he says, he says, you're hostile in mind. You're actually hostile towards the things of God. And then the third thing he says about us as people apart from Christ is that we're doing evil deeds. And you might be like, but I'm not that bad of a person. Like, what kind of evil are we talking about here? I mean, like, okay, Nazi Germany, evil. Putin, evil. Simple. Like, cut and cut and dry, right? Me, pretty decent, right? Like, not that bad of a person. Well, Jesus said, even our righteousness is as filthy rags apart from Christ. Your goodness is never good enough on your own. And he says, even the good things you're doing are not motivated with the right reasons. And he says, here's who you are apart from Christ. But here's what I want to say. He takes the alienated, the hostile in mind, the person doing evil deeds, and here's what he does. He reconciles you back to himself. He takes this alienated, hostile, evil person, just like I was, and he reconciles us back to himself. How does, he, how does he make it right? How does he do this? How can he fix? Like, for instance, how can I fix a relationship with my wife? You know what I do? Here's my tendency. Amanda knows. <laughs> I, my tendency is to go do the dishes. <laughs> I'm like, all of a sudden, it's like, let's just fix stuff around the house. I don't really want to have a conversation. That's too awkward. And so let's just fix stuff. All right. Let me, all right. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be, I just go around trying to do good things, and it never works. I don't know why I still do it. I'm like, what's the point? <laughs> like, this is, never ever fix it. It eventually comes down to now it's bedtime. <laughs> it's like, can we just go to sleep? No, we got we to gotta get this right. So Eric, you know, you know when you blank, 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 whatever, right? It's like, yeah, I know. And what happens, right? We have to make it right. I can try to fix it by doing dishes, cleaning up the kit, like, let's, let's start folding clothes. One of my favorite things to do in life is fold clothes. Just kidding. <laughs> I hate it. That's why there's piles of clothes sometimes. It's like, I don't want to do it. You know, the, my boys, like, spitting image, yep, they're like me. They don't want to fold clothes either. Um, and so, but, like, we want to make things right. And here's what we do with God. Here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible is very clear. It says the wages of sin is death. Now, we understand wage. I remember when I got my first job, I made like five bucks or something, whatever minimum wage was at the time. And I remember the first time I saw taxes, I'm like, wait, I thought I made what? And then it's like, where did my money go? I'm like, yep, not to me. <laughs> and, and it went somewhere else, you know? Uh, but like, I got the idea of wage. I'm like, I worked hard for this money. It's mine. Scripture tells you this. This is why I like this language that, Jesus, that God uses um, in, in, in Romans when he says, the wages of sin is death. What you earn because of your sin, and you're saying, what sin? The smallest, most insignificant lie. The most adulterous affair. The, the most hated sin of murdering someone. Or doing serious crimes and war crimes like we're hearing about today. To the, to the smallest little white lie, to the greatest you know, uh, unfaithfulness or the greatest sin that we could think of. All of that sin, here's what it does. It is a wage, and actually it earned you something. And you're like, normally it's like, I would like the 10 bucks, not the eternal punishment. But the Bible tells us very clearly that the wage of sin is death, and not just death physically. That is one of the effects of sin. 
Adam and Eve, when they sinned, death was cast on all people. Every single person who lives, eventually they get old and they die, right? Like things go bad. They don't get better. Creation isn't getting better and getting smoother and nicer. No, it's dying. It's decaying over time because that's an effect of sin. That's what we earn for our sins. We earn Punishment, the way I like to describe this is this. Here's, here's how you pay for your sin. There's really only two ways to pay for your sin. One way, you can choose to live your life how you want to. And you live it, and it's great. It's a fun life. You enjoyed it. You lived it for yourself and not God, even though he's the creator God. He's a sustainer, and you're like, but I don't care. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Great, you have a good life. Awesome. Guess what? We all die. We still die. And here's the punishment. Here's the payment for your sin eternal punishment in a lake of the way the, the way scripture describes it is a lake of fire eternally separated from a holy god you can pay for your sins by eternally being punished not like punished for a while purgatory not dying for a little bit or getting really because you know you were a really bad person so you get punished a little harder no eternal punishment you will keep paying for it for all of eternity and keep paying for it or there's another option this is the option that happens in this life this is, the hap- this is the option where, here's what he tells us. Look at it again. It's verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's reconciling. He's making things right. He's mending what was broken. And he's reconciling it to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. And notice what he says. It goes into verse 21. We'll see that word reconcile again. Because he first gives us a description of who we are apart from him. You were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil de- deeds. Here's what he's done. He has now, Christ has now reconciled, notice this, in his body of flesh, Jesus, the eternal God, the creator God who made you, also is going to, in his body, when he came to earth, die for you, it says, of flesh, by his death, in order to do something. He's making you from evil, alienated, hostile, to notice these three things he mentions here. And they're in your, I'm going to put them in your notes. Here's who you are in Christ. Holy. That is without sin. Blameless, faultless, like no one can hold it against you anymore. They can't hold the, that wage, that earning of your sin. You can't, it can't be held over you anymore. It's not something like God's like, hey, dangling, like, hey, don't, don't forget what you did. No, he takes you and he says, you're holy. I, you're holy. You're set apart, pure. You're blameless and above reproach. And you might be going like, but how? How can I experience this? How can I experience relationship with God? Because if we're, telling, if we're told in this passage, all things were created by him and for him, then what do I do with my life now? You give it all to him. You say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I will work this job for your glory. I will maybe change jobs if it's for your glory. I will live this life for you. My marriage will be different. My relationships with people will be different. Everything about me will be different. But how does that happen? How can you experience that in this life? The Bible tells us in this passage. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is, that he came, he died, 
He rose again to pay the price. See, the two options were simple. It both comes through death. The first option, you pay your sins for all of eternity, dying an eternal death, a, a very alert, not like you die and then you're dead and there's nothingness. No, eternal punishment separated from God. Nothing good that you experience in this life, you can't experience in that because it'll be completely apart from God. Because everything you experience in this life is by grace. The grace to have an eyes to, to, to look at a loved one to experience laughter and fun, like we'll do this afternoon, to look at a sunrise. All that's grace. Whether you're a believer or non-believer, you can enjoy that. Separated from God, no grace, no goodness, nothing good. Everything outside of Him and apart from Him is nothing good. And it's eternal punishment from Him. But here's the thing. It also comes through death. It comes through. The other option is Jesus dies for you in your place. That is the gospel, the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, how can you experience this? You experience relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ by faith. It is by faith, but not just a cheap, phony faith, not a once in a prayer, throw up a prayer and say, God, I believe. It's not intellect because the demons, the Bible tells in James, the demons believe and tremble. They know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. They choose not to surrender to him. They're not giving it to him. They're not saying you're above all, you're the sustainer, so I release myself to you. I give you my life because you're the creator. You're the sustainer. You are God. I give you my life. No, they say, I want to do what I want to do. And so they choose not. They know the facts about Jesus. They know the facts about God, but they choose not to submit to him. And listen, there are countless people who don't submit to him. They live their life the way they want to live it. And they do what they want to do. I've told you this before. I remember sitting across the table with a young guy who reached out to me. He was searching. He was seeking. He wanted to have a relationship with God. And then when I shared the gospel with him and talked about it, he was like, he looked him in the eyes and he was like, I don't think I can give up X, Y, Z in my life. I don't think I can give up doing what I want to do. It's not a stable and steadfast, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel kind of faith. It might be a like, I want to, but it's not lasting. You see, Abraham wasn't perfect. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But he failed multiple times. But you know what? His faith might have gone like this a little bit, but he made it to the very end, till his death, his last breath, he believed. He put his faith, he gave his life, and said, I'll follow you, God, wherever you take me. Listen, I implore you, I beg of you, you can experience this change from, from a e person who's alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds to a person who's now blameless, holy, and above reproach. And it happens through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator, sustainer of all things, who is fully God. It is by faith that you can be saved. So listen, I want to encourage you, cry out to him in faith. When you cry out to him and say, God, I don't know, I see my sin is ever before me. I know I don't do things always right. I know I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner, and I need your rescue, I need your salvation to come into my life. I give you my life. God, I, I come with open hands and an open heart saying, God, I surrender to you. I give you, this is not my life because you created me. It's not for me, it's for you. Give it to him. I, you're like, I don't know how to pray. Just talk to him like you would talk to your friend. Say, God, 
I don't even know what to say right now, but I know I'm a sinner and I need your rescue and I want to believe. Help me to believe. Help me to believe that you are God and that you are in control and put me, help me to put my faith in you and let him change you. Let him take you from hostile, an enemy of his to a holy, blameless, and above reproach person. It can be done because he is a reconciling God. I want to pray for you. And I want us to see Christ for who he is. I want us to live our life differently. Like I said when I prayed at the very beginning, leave differently than we came. I thank God. I, I, I'm just going to pray to you, Father. I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what to say. And I'm sure there's others in here who are like, I don't, I don't know even how to pray or talk to you. But God, you're just like a dad if I was talking to my dad. I talk to my dad and ask him for help. <laughs> dad, I don't know what to do in this situation. Or how do you fix this, Dad? I'm not sure. I don't know. God, help us to come to you as a heavenly father, asking for help. Maybe some are like, I want to believe in this. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. So God, help me. And so I pray that that would be true for each person in this room, that they would give their life to Christ saying that you're above all, that you are quick to forgive. You're an amazing God who loves us, who's died for us. Your blood was shed on a cross so that you could pay the ultimate price for our sin because we couldn't pay it back. We couldn't do enough good to earn it. You had to come. And so, God, I thank you that in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, that you did come, that you take my place. God, I pray that if we have not, if someone in this room has not placed their faith in you, has not put their hope and rested in, in you, I pray they'll do that today. They don't leave this room, leave this place without knowing for sure that they're standing with you. So help us, God. Help us to pursue you with everything and come with an open hand and open heart to follow you. So help us in all these things. And we ask it in your wonderful son's name that we've talked about this morning. Amen.